Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, as always, Nico Perino. Now, we've been doing this podcast for nearly five years, and recently my boss, Fire President and CEO Greg Lukianoff, he tweeted a recap of So To Speak's most popular episodes by listenership. And I thought it might be fun to share those with you as kind of a New Year's reflection. So, to get us started, coming in at number one was our 2018 conversation with former Evergreen State professor Brett Weinstein. He is now, of course, famously a professor in exile. After that, in positions one through four are our conversations with high-profile thinkers such as Steven Pinker and Glenn Greenwald, as well as our 2018 debate over whether there is a campus free speech crisis. And that debate, of course, featured debaters such as Andrew Sullivan, Jonathan Haidt, Jeffrey Sachs, and Suzanne Nozzle. Now, over the years, there's one thing I've noticed about our listenership. It's almost directly correlated to how high profile our guests are. We could put weeks of time into producing something with multiple interviews and underscore and sound effects, kind of like our episodes about the Great Chinese Firewall, the Social Media Delete Squad, and Berkeley Then and Now, but those episodes will never compare to the listenership of an episode featuring the likes of Brown University professor Glenn Lowry, who has a large following and whose episode comes in at number six in our list of top episodes. And this same popularity concept principle holds for the New York Times bestselling book, The Coddling of the American Mind, co-written by Greg and Jonathan Haidt. My conversation with Greg from 2018 about coddling comes in at number five in our list of most listened to episodes. The book appeared on the bestsellers list for nine weeks and has sold nearly 400,000 copies, which is an astronomical number in the world of nonfiction publishing. And since the publication of Coddling, Greg has actually put together a series called Catching Up with Coddling for his blog, The Eternally Radical Idea, in which he explores some of the developments within different themes from that book. One of those themes is parenting and how parenting trends in America might explain other social phenomena on college campuses and beyond, including calls for censorship and rising rates of anxiety and depression among young people. So as part of Greg's Catching Up with Coddling series, he asked me if we could invite Kate Julian on the show to discuss these trends. Kate is a senior editor with The Atlantic, and last May she published a blockbuster cover story for The Atlantic entitled What Happened to American Childhood, which posits that, quote, too many kids show worrying signs of fragility from a very young age, close quote. Her piece cites such worrying trends as the percentage of 12 to 17-year-olds who experience a major depressive episode in the previous year shot up from 8% in 2007, to 13% in 2017. Suicides among 10 to 24-year-olds shot up 56%, eclipsing homicide as the second leading cause of death in that age group after accidents, of course. And she also speaks to a rise in childhood anxiety, which she argues is often connected to parental anxiety and is encouraged by parental accommodations. She writes of one child, for example, who refused to eat anything but turkey loaf and how the family at first accommodated that desire before seeking help and overcoming it. There's a lot changing with American childhood, and it's not just rising levels of mental illness. There's also failure to launch and overprotective parenting, all of which, of course, could, and Greg and Kate argue, are 
likely interconnected. For example, today, only 10% of kids walk or bicycle to school, which Kate writes is a steep decline from decades past. And 40 years ago, 58% of teenagers also got summer jobs. Today, only 35% do. I won't belabor the subject before we get into our conversation with Greg and Kate, but suffice to say that Kate's article was shocking, even to a non-parent like me who read Coddling and was already aware of these trends. But catching up with Coddling, it's clear things have gotten worse since Coddling was published. And if the thesis of Coddling is correct, these developments foretell even more worrisome trends for free speech and open discourse on college campuses, to say nothing of corporate America in the years to come. A quick show note before we begin, this conversation was recorded online due to the pandemic, and we did experience some technical issues during the recording. We were able to fix many of those in post-production, but if you hear some weirdness here and there, that's why. Now, onto the show. Kate Julian, Greg Lukianoff, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be on. I'm really excited you gave me the opportunity to talk about this particular article because I thought it was so brilliant and important and informative. Well, Greg, if you don't mind, I will take the host privilege here and ask the first question of Kate, which is, Kate, when did you first realize the startling rise in anxiety, depression, and even suicide in American children? Is this something that you came across in the statistics, many of which there are a ton of them in your article, or is this, you know, as the mother of a six and 10 year old, is this something you noticed amongst their peers, amongst them, or even amongst yourself? So I think that for the past 10 years or so, anybody who follows the headlines and the research on this has been aware of various concerning numbers, right? So suicides are perhaps the most obvious one, but there have been um, and, and lots of people have talked about this concerning signs that adolescents are suffering from much higher rates of depression and anxiety. And certainly as a parent, you're right, there is a consciousness um, of these things that is very different than what I remember growing up in the 80s. I was born in 1978 for context. So given all of that, and also given my own family history, um, I have a disproportionate amount of pretty serious mental health problems on my side of the family. Lost one family member to addiction, more or less um, lost another to suicide. This is something that is really, really concerning to me. So basically, um, to, to sort of loop back to your question of sort of why I started digging into this, when the editors of The Atlantic were looking for somebody to kind of try to do a more holistic, like what's happening beyond the smartphones, beyond a lot of the phenomena that have been discussed so far, I raised my hand um, because I have, you know, uh, very personal reasons for being concerned. Yeah. So Greg, when you wrote The Coddling of the American Mind in 2015, you posited as a contributing factor, you and your co-author, Jonathan Haidt, that smartphones and social media might be contributing to the rise in anxiety and depression and even suicide amongst young people. Now, Kate, in your article uh, from April of 2020, you found that that you don't think that that's as much of a contributor, although you think it's a big contributor amongst those who are already predisposed to anxiety and depression, if I'm not misstating. Yeah. Where, where do you both kind of stand on that now? And Greg, I'll start with you, and then Kate, you could probably respond. Oh, sure. I actually don't think of us as disagreeing all that much. One thing I've had to correct, first of all, is that people will refer to the coddling of the American mind just as coddling. 
Um, and they think that more or less that our premise is that kids are spoiled, which is one of the reasons that I've always hated that title, because that's not at all what we're saying. We talk about six different causal threads, and we definitely think that social media sped up both anxiety and depression, but I do think that there's some amount of homophily going on there, where like is meeting like, and the Depeche Mode goth kids are talking to each other without any sort of sunny friend to cheer them up. I do think that that's part of it, but I think that the limitations that Kate talks about are very real. Like, why would that affect kids who are too young to have smartphones? I always have to remind people that we have six different causal threads. The two that are influenced by smartphones, we believe, are teenage anxiety uh, and depression and polarization. Uh, I'm definitely a big believer that polarization pats us on the back for being in separate groups. And I think polarization increases the temperature on practically everything. But one of the reasons why I really, really wanted to talk to Kate was because two of our causal threads are about parenting. Right now, I'm doing a series called Catching Up with Coddling on my blog, Eternally Radical Idea. And I just got to the section about paranoid parenting. And we hit that pretty hard, that essentially some of this is coming from excessive worry from parents. And some of it's coming from the pressure to get into a fancy school and all that kind of stuff. We also talk about how lack of free play and lack of unstructured time is making things so much worse. That was actually kind of a surprise chapter for both me and Height. We didn't really think that play would be that important of a factor going in, but after doing the research, uh, we, we came around to it. But after reading Kate's article, I, I just, and again, I can't say enough about it. I think it's just so good, and I'm citing it all the time now. If anything, it left me feeling that we didn't hit paranoid parenting hard enough one thing that she brings uh, to the conversation that I think is so important to keep in mind, and I'm a parent too, I have a two and a four-year-old, there is uh, this kind of idea that this is a rational response to outside pressure and that parents are acting with a cold, calculating rationality when in a lot of cases we're acting out of a big sense of panic. That's one of the reasons why I love this, the article so much and one of the reasons why I wanted to have her on. Two things I really wanted to get into with her one is just everything about the article. I have specific questions about specific quotes. But also one thing I think we didn't hit hard enough, um, and I ran this by height, is what's called income inequality, which I prefer to call income stratification. Yes. Uh, for reasons I, I'm going to explain in a future post. But the idea that there is an upper class now that you can fall out of and that it's pretty hard to stay in unless you are super, super wealthy, that seems to be affecting every aspect of our society as well. We mention it, but I wanted to get Kate's opinion on what role uh, she thinks that plays. Now, so should we jump to that question now? I didn't mean to, but I seem to have accidentally done it. So let's do it. <laughs> so this is something I did not discuss uh, much, if at all, in the article, but which I think is so underappreciated. Um, and it's not that it's been completely unattended to. If you look at the work, for example, of Madeline Levine, the Bay Area psychologist who helped popularize the term um, helicopter parenting back in the late aughts, she talks a lot about the work of a, an academic psychologist named Sunaya Luthar, who was then at Columbia and who is now, I believe, at Arizona State. And Luthar, um, for those who are not familiar with her work, has focused on the sort of particular psychological precarity and anxiety and vulnerability of affluent children. This had not, to be clear, 
prior to her work really been much of a concern for anybody. It's hard to sort of sell people on the idea that we should be concerned about the luckiest kids. But in fact, what she has gathered a pretty compelling set of data showing is that there's a kind of funny um, distribution to various problems in adolescence, including addiction, depression, anxiety, and suicidal behavior, where you see a big cluster at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, and then you see another big cluster at the very high end of the socioeconomic spectrum. We first cited her work, Luthar's work in the Atlantic Magazine, several years ago in an article that my colleague Hannah Rosen wrote about a suicide cluster at Gunn High School in Palo Alto, which happens to be the high school that I attended and graduated from in 1996. And Hanna used Luthar's research, as Madeline Levine had in her own books, to sort of try to unpack this question of why might the luckiest kids, in some sense, be sort of the least lucky. And, you know, Hanna isolated a few specific things, you know, one of which had to do with something we've all heard a lot about, right, academic pressure. But another sort of more surprising cause that she found and that, and that sort of dovetailed with Luthar's work was that these kids felt really isolated from their parents, which sort of going back to what you were saying is completely contrary to our stereotypes of helicopter parents, right? The whole idea of the helicopter parent is that they are hovering, that they are there. But in fact, a lot of these kids in these most affluent and most high-powered communities felt a lot of distance. Is this a uniquely American phenomenon? You seem to suggest so in, in the article. And, and if it is, are we starting to see it percolate elsewhere? So all of these things are really hard to compare. The sort of data is uneven by country. I do think um, that, you know, there's pretty solid evidence that whatever's going on is uniquely bad in America, right? So some of the numbers that I cited in the piece you know, about severely depressed teenagers, you know, sort of being up by sort of 50% over the past decade, the climb in suicide rates. There isn't really anything that steep in any other country that I've seen evidence of. There are some increases in some places. I think, though, like just to belabor this point about socioeconomic status a minute more, if I'm not boring everybody, um, part of what this comes back to and what Greg was alluding to was that the parents themselves are suffering from anxiety. And a lot of the research on anxiety, when you really dig into it, talks about what a familial um, disorder it is. And that's partially for genetic reasons, right? We, in fact, you know, anxiety disorders are probably like the best understood thing in the psychological literature. Um, we know, you know that they're much more common than they were a while ago. That's not merely about sort of increased diagnosis and increased awareness, but that it's actually more prevalent. We have data to show that. But we also know sort of in more granular detail that there's this really tight connection between parents and kids. And not all of that is genetic. We know from animal studies and from a variety of other sort of clever, clever sort of uh, research that some of this has to do with parenting style. And returning to this kind of question of socioeconomic stress, I found a couple of things that were just really, really interesting on this. Um, one has to do, there, there's a great study several years ago by a couple of economists named Therese Lund and Eric Deering that looked at sort of who did best in terms of anxiety. And the punchline of that is just so counterintuitive to me and so kind of telling, and it, it does kind of underscore what this woman, Sunaya Luthar, was finding. 
is they found that the kids who had the best outcomes in terms of anxiety were not merely, you know, lucky kids, kids with, you know, well-educated, affluent parents. They were kids who had well-educated, affluent parents who chose not to live in neighborhoods with other well-educated, affluent parents. Honestly, a lot of this speaks to me on a personal level. Yeah. I'm a first-generation American. We were pretty poor until my dad started working regularly again when I was 10 or 11. And when I got to Stanford Law School, which was a school I didn't even know existed when I was younger, um, and I thought Yale was some terrible place in New Haven, <laughs> I had no freaking clue about this way of being raised. Um, it was weird for me to talk to one of these, uh, one of the relatives of a woman that I dated uh, while in law school. Uh, and I ran into her younger cousin, um, and she said, oh, you know what it's like, Greg, the pressure of having all your friends dying to get into that one particular school. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. No idea what you're talking about. I, I am the weirdo. <laughs> Nobody, yeah, exactly. You have, you have no sense of what that kind of, that, that pressure cooker is like. And I don't think that this is merely a matter of, academic pressure. I think that that's a big part of it. But I think that the extent to which a lot of the conversation has focused on that has kind of missed another equally, if not more important aspect of parenting, including in these really privileged communities that I think has been unrecognized. And this was what I was really trying to hit in the article, which is that in some way, it's not so much that we're inflicting too much stress on our kids. It's that we're not actually allowing them to experience enough stress in preparation for that later stress. In other words, we, we I don't like the word coddle either, but we protect, we insulate, we do everything we can to actually prevent them from experiencing or feeling any anxiety throughout early childhood, throughout early adolescence. And then suddenly they're dumped into this really, you know, very, very competitive rat race and they don't remotely have the skills to deal with that. It's sort of the weird contrast between those two things, sort of too much protection from stress and then immersion in it. Yeah, and that's precisely our argument in Coddling of the American Mind. I'm friends with Julie Lithcott-Hames. She was a dean in the law school when I was there. Also, I will note a parent at the high school that I just mentioned in Palo Alto. Oh my goodness. Oh, that's incredible. Yes. Okay, yeah. My <laughs> former assistant, Eli Feldman, grew up there. Yeah. This is one of those things I literally can't even imagine. <laughs> but the way she describes it, and one of the reasons why I didn't like the title at first, was partially because I was trying to say that, no, I actually feel a great sympathy for these kids. This is the nexus between that and free time, because right. you're, talk, you're taking some of these kids who are, in some cases, just flat-out geniuses. You're scheduling them from 6 a.m. Yep. to midnight, and then they get to school, and Julie watched this happen in real time. Just with increasing numbers of them, there are ones who don't know how to make basic decisions that gave them a locus of control and a sense of self-efficacy. The idea of checking with their parents in every single case for every single decision. And yeah. for people like me and Julie, that just broke our hearts because you're taking a kid who could be super confident but not giving him enough exposure to the ups and downs of independence, but also not giving them some basic life skills that make them feel like they can live on their own in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is what, you know, you, you talk a lot about this in, in the book, in Coddling. Um, 
but sort of if you take the basic lessons of how something like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy works, and then you sort of work backwards and try to figure out like what's parenting style would embody those lessons, you get something more or less the opposite of what we have now. Um, and that seems particularly kind of concerning when you're talking about anxiety specifically, which to an extent that I hadn't personally realized until I dug into the reporting for this piece, we now know really is a gateway to much more serious problems, you know, including, you know, not only depression, but addiction, suicidality, a bunch of other problems that are frankly much harder to treat than the anxiety, which sort of sets it all off. If you could talk a little more about that, because there's a quote about this, something like, if you're afraid of dogs, the reason why you should be concerned about it is because it makes you four times more likely to... To end up in a bad, bad place. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk more about that? Because that really blew me away. Oh, let me give the actual quote from Ronald Kessler. At Harvard, yeah. Quote, a fear of dogs at age five or 10 is important, not because uh, a fear of dogs impairs the quality of your life, Fear of dogs is important because it makes you four times more likely to end up a 25-year-old depressed high school dropout single mother who is drug dependent. Good Lord. Is that true? So let me um, pause to say that that quote is something that uh, Ron actually said to my colleague Scott Stossel, in which he included in his book um, on anxiety, his wonderful book, uh, My Age of Anxiety, a few years back. It is, however, um, true. I mean, I've spoken to Kessler about wow. that. He didn't put that point in quite such colorful language, which is why I, I um, sort of requoted re from Scott's book. But we have the benefit of a number of studies that have followed people from childhood onward at this point and tried to figure out sort of what, what things were most likely to prefigure, predict, or cause, you know, and sometimes it can be a bit hard to entangle what, what's causal and what's, you know, merely um, correlated to um, later problems. And we know um, from these studies and from some other things that have looked at treatment efforts and early intervention, that when anxiety in childhood is untreated, it is the kids who have that are much, much more likely to suffer from depression and these other problems later on. And we know, I mean, looking at the dog point specifically, that there are certain anxiety disorders that tend to pop up earliest. There's almost like a, a, a kind of order. So dog phobia is important because it's a sign that the kid is suffering from anxiety and that if the kid doesn't learn to deal with that anxiety, they are more likely to become avoidant of other things that scare them over time. I think that there is still, you know, despite what you've said in coddling and what other people have pointed out in other widely read publications and venues, there is just this really fundamental misunderstanding in the culture of what anxiety is. And it's, it, it's ironic and really troubling in a weird way that the more prevalent this word becomes, the more parents think it's their job to avoid it and to help their children avoid it. So what we know, of course, right, is that occasional anxiety is part of life, right? We feel anxious when we're faced with something stressful. And to some extent, that's actually adaptive and good, right? Like we need the arousal of feeling nervous or stressed to deal effectively and rationally with certain kinds of problems. That's just part of being human. The problem is that when it, that it rises to a level of a disorder when sort of the fear that it provokes and the avoidance of that fear starts to distort your whole life and to be out of proportion to the situation, to be incessant. And this is where somebody like Ron Kessler is talking about the kid with the dog phobia, 
sort of becoming the kid who then later is avoiding other things, social situations, work situations potentially. The kid winds up self-medicating to try to deal with their feelings of anxiety and so on and so on and so on. Oh, but I did want to mention one thing because Nico likes to keep it about free speech. And I want to make sure that I explain what the, the nexus is here. Um, essentially, and I've said this many times, students started coming in to campus in 2013, 2014, um, not just arguing for new restrictions on free speech, which was new because students had always been good on free speech, but they were arguing um, these medicalized rationales. And this, this was very... Um, uh, th th this was a change for me. They were arguing it very closely tied to a medical trauma-based understanding. So these things that don't seem like they'd be related at all, that essentially if there's an idea that campus itself has to deal with anything that could potentially be traumatic or merely even anxiety-producing, they have to deal with that. That has serious free speech implications, which is what led to coddling the American mind but also into this wonderful and terrifying at the, same, at, at, at the same time area of inquiry. I just wanted to make sure we had the nexus there. Well, one of the, one of the people who, uh, Kate, you cite in your article is uh, Erica Christakis, who of course is an expert on uh, early childhood development, but also the center of the Yale Halloween co costume controversy. And, uh, yeah, one, part of me thinks that the medicalization of censorship and the concern over emotional labor and feeling safe has some tie-ins here with uh, st student anxiety, perhaps encouraged um, by their childhood and, and not confronting some of these troubling ideals or what they would call troubling ideas earlier in their lives. No, absolutely. I mean, I think if, if we can introduce this notion of accommodation that I focus on a lot in the piece, I think that is helpful to understand how some of this actually Yes, affects. let's talk about accommodation. I think our listeners need to hear that. And, yeah. and turkey loaf, if you would. Yeah, turkey loaf. I have, I have to get to the turkey loaf. So in talking to various researchers, as I was starting to report this piece, over and over, people kept saying like, well, have you talked to Ellie Leibowitz yet? Have you talked to Ellie Leibowitz yet? Ellie Leibowitz teaches at the Child Study Center um, at Yale, and he has developed a program uh, called SPACE, uh, which basically treats childhood anxiety by working with the parents directly and exclusively without even seeing the children in most cases, except for possibly like a baseline evaluation and a follow-up evaluation. And this treatment is based upon a concept known as accommodation. Accommodation is basically anything that a parent does to try to um, help a child avoid feeling anxious, okay? So this comes from the sort of literature and treatment approaches for OCD. When Leibowitz was a psychiatry resident in Israel, he was working part of his time in an anxiety clinic for kids and part of his time in an OCD clinic. And with the OCD kids, they would work a lot on getting the parents to reduce accommodation of the child's um, OCD symptoms. So, for example, you would have a family come in for treatment where, you know, the kids got issues around cleanliness. And so everybody in their house is engaging in ritualistic hand washing to try to make the kid feel calmer. Right. Or everybody is avoiding a certain word. And it worked actually pretty well, like by getting other members of the family to stop. Uh, accommodating, it was sort of helped pave the way for the kids to sort of have to confront their anxieties around these things. 
Uh, and conversely, when parents did more of the accommodating, the kid's disorder tended to get worse. And then Leibowitz says he would head down the hall to the anxiety clinic and he would have to do these calls with families who'd come in for treatment with a sort of non-treatment compliant kid, a, treat a kid who didn't want help. And they would say, well, isn't there something that we can do? And he would have to say to them, look, like, no, actually, if the kid's not ready to play ball, there's really nothing I can do for you. And he thought, like, gosh, this is really silly. Like, what if I were to try to apply this notion of accommodation to anxiety instead of to OCD narrowly? And he did that, and he's found in the last several years at Yale running this program, and he's published um, some good articles on this in, in, in the past couple of years, that he can get results as good as or probably actually slightly better than CBT for childhood anxiety without actually treating the kids. And what he does is he works with the parents to help them identify what they are doing to help ease the kid's anxiety. And then counterintuitively sort of asks them to stop doing it and almost sort of magically, voila, the kid's symptoms tend to abate over time. And that's because the kid has to confront whatever it is that they're avoiding, whatever it is they're scared of. And in time, the kid realizes actually, like, I can do this. It's sort of like CBT kind of by proxy. You go through the exposure to the thing you're scared of. And you find, you know, that it's not quite as scary as you thought. Um, there's a great example um, that one of Leibowitz's colleagues gave me, and I spoke to the family involved. Um, this was a really lovely child who had, who, who I call Owen in the piece, who had um, almost like a pathological, not almost like an actually pathological fear of most foods. Owen um, had eaten nothing, virtually nothing for like three years, except for turkey meatloaf and dry Cheerios for breakfast. His parents had prepared thousands, like literally we counted thousands of portions of turkey meatloaf for this kid. And it had started off quite innocently, right? Where they had this kid who'd been in the NICU, who then had feeding issues, and they were very worried about keeping him nourished, very worried about actually, you know, doing what they saw as their most fundamental job as parents, right? Keeping their kid fed. But over time, the kid just became more and more and more picky, more and more and more scared of other types of food. And they had found themselves sort of backed into this corner. So the space program sort of very simply worked with the parents to get them to stop doing this. And the kid now is doing great. Like he's not an adventurous eater, but, you know, he can function in the world. Um, so, you know, what, what's kind of very interesting to me about this is not how, not only how successful this approach is, but how much kind of understanding sort of parents' very well-intended efforts to, to insulate kids actually backfires. I mean, it's just, a, it's just a, a really dramatic kind of crystallization of that. This is a good time to bring up some of the things I've been doing in catching up with coddling. One thing I think that Height and I, uh, and I did in the book that I'm really glad we did was when we got into the parenting issues, we stepped away from it and said, neither of us are or can become parenting experts. So we just interviewed a ton of different people about it. That included Erica Christakis, uh, Lenore Skenazy, Peter Gray, uh, Julie, who we've previously mentioned, and of course, many others. And in updating uh, our findings from Coddling in the American Mind and Catching Up with Coddling, one of the things I'm updating is, for example, Actung Baby by Sarah Zasky, which is a book that talks about how Germany seems to have been some, have to have a somewhat built-in resistance to some of this stuff that we're, 
we're talking about because there is a very strong, even yeah. painful focus on fostering independence, which I thought was very an inter- interesting insight. But the book that I was thinking about with regard to income stratification and one that I will be uh, that I'll be saying more about, um, but also has the least memorable title of any book. I'm so sorry to say this, but it, it just I can never remember this because it just seems like a word jumble. I can never remember it, but it's I looked it up. Love, money, and parenting: How economics explains the way we raise our kids. And this is um, I'm going to get pronounced the uh, names wrong. Have you read this one? Um, it's Dopke and Zilaboti. I haven't. No. What, what's the argument? The argument is essentially that if you look at countries across the world, the ones that have the greatest income stratification are the ones that have the greatest focus on hard work and the most anxious kids at the mm-hmm. same time, which makes a great deal of sense. One thing that I find, like as we talk about this income stratification point, kind of interesting with regard to anxiety specifically, and this takes us a little bit away from what I've been talking about, which is sort of the way that parental behavior is making the problem worse is the idea that actually maybe there might be some sort of set of genetic susceptibility that's increasing um, due to assortative mating. Very interesting. Pretty fascinating stuff on that. Um, I I didn't really have space or time to get into it in the, um, in, um, in the book, but you know, Judith or in the article rather, but um, Judith Warner's book, we've got issues, which came out maybe in like 2011, which is about sort of medication and, and, childhood psychiatric issues has a really interesting section on this, which I would, um, let me see if I can actually find it here. She says, if I can read from it, assortative mating is a fascinating concept, one that's been taken up by a wide range of social scientists in different contexts. Some evolutionary psychologists have warned that the pumping up of certain kids' genes through the now common practice of high-level professionals marrying other high-level professionals will increase our country's class-related achievement gap. Eating disorder experts have wondered whether new trends in spousal selection of the past 30 odd years can explain the increased and earlier incidence of anorexia nervosa in today's girls. And then she goes on to talk about other people who have speculated about whether this might be the case with anxiety as well. In other words, that you're more likely to have, you know, high functioning, anxious parents meeting each other in sort of higher educational settings and and having children. And, you know, this is obviously related to an argument that Simon Baron Cohen, for example, has made with regard to possibly sort of autism, right? Um, but there is, num- you know, there's some numerical support for it. There's a, a c- couple of anxiety researchers, uh, Kathleen Marikongas at uh, NIMH and Myrna Weissman of Columbia, have sort of studied quite a bit familial aggregation of a whole bunch of things, depression, alcoholism, but anxiety too, and have found real support for the idea that some of the spike we're seeing is probably due to more anxious people marrying more anxious people more than was likely to be the case in the past. This is fascinating to me because a lot of my overall view on some of these messed up things about current society is, that I use is the term runaway homophily. It's essentially that we're allowed to super sort ourselves. Uh, our natural inclination is to meet people who, who are like us. And of course, I joke all the time with my wife about the good and bad of things we have on our common Punnett square. Uh, on, on both sides of the Punnett square, you know, we have to tell our kids, you're kind of doomed um, to be this thing. That makes a lot of sense, though. And that insight by itself is really going to help inform the next couple of pieces of, of catching up with Godlink. There is, I hate to sort of jump back to the accommodation thing, but before I went on that tangent, I realized there's a point I wanted to make that I think does bring this back to some of the free speech issues and the sort of larger civil society issues that you're concerned with. And that has to do with how this parental 
this misguided parental belief that we need to insulate kids from anxiety and stress is actually playing out in schools. There's been some work following up on Ellie Leibowitz's work, sort of trying to, to apply this notion of accommodation and to, to anxiety, looking at how school policies to deal with anxious kids may or may not be sort of repeating that mistake, often at the behest of parents. So for example, if you look at how schools say they're managing student anxiety, a lot of really common responses, parent requested responses in many cases are actually really contrary to what the science would say and what CBT would say you need to do with the anxious kid. So for example, we have you know, rising use of mental health days. We have you know, rising phenomenon of kids being able to get extra time for tests, extra, you know, uh, special dispensation from sort of uh, oral speaking assignments, um, you know, get out of class passes to go to the nurse's office, all of these things. And they do sort of, you know, also sort of fit into this culture of sort of saying that kids shouldn't have to be exposed to things that upset them. Um, there's no question about that. Just as an aside here, I know you've written about the sex recession as well. Mm. Does this play into that at all? I mean, it, you have this wonderful part of your essay where you go through the ways that parents accommodate their children, including like announcing what, when they're moving from different rooms. Mm. And, uh, I wondered, you know, if sex can be messy, sex can be difficult. Consent can be messy. Is the same sort of anxiety that's driving some of these childhood behaviors also driving, uh, kids, or I should say teenagers or young adults to be weary of sex and all the messiness that it entails. I think absolutely, right? And I've thought about that a lot. I'm actually expanding the sex recession article into a book right now. So since the anxiety article came out, that's what I've been focusing on, this, this question of why today's young adults seem um, on average, not seem, are on average less likely to be engaged in romantic or sexual experiences and relationships and why they, why they are so leery of intimacy. And we know, I mean, there's a straightforward answer to this, which I discussed in the earlier magazine article, which is we know anxiety is a big libido killer, right? So that's straightforward. But I think that what you're saying is 100% spot on. Romantic, physical, other types of intimacy involve spontaneity, messiness, awkwardness, embarrassment, all kinds of things that people who have issues with anxiety are likely to struggle with. Um, I also think that, you know, when we, when we talk about um, some of the stuff that, you know, you've discussed with Lenore Scanese, Peter Gray, Julie Lithcott-Hames, these other people, there's kind of an argument to be made, I think, that play is really, and, and Peter Gray does make this argument, play really is fundamentally, evolutionarily, one of these things that prepares us for interpersonal relationships. Right, yeah. for, getting, for getting along with other people, for reading other people, something that's obviously very, very key to some of the cassette issues that we're dealing with right now, for knowing whether somebody's into something or not into something. Peter Gray likes to say, you know, this is kids who are sort of engaged in non-parent supervised play have to figure out whether the other kid's having a good time if they want to keep the play session going. Um, and and I, I do think that when you don't have that experience in childhood, having to deal with an intimate relationship can actually be kind of scary. This is all super interesting to me. Like I said, the play section was something we weren't expecting to have. Height liked uh, to really emphasize how it teaches you to handle interpersonal negotiations and make decisions on your own. And I even go a step further. 
Yuval Harari really popularized the idea of intersubjective reality, that essentially we forget sometimes that banks, for example, uh, more or less, only exist in our heads, that we all decided that this time we were playing for realsies. And now we're going to, to imagine there's a thing out there. And he's really brought to the attention how much imagination plays in our everyday life in a way that we don't even understand. Because we think of institutions as being more than in our minds. And in a sense, because we think of it that way, they become real. So the taking away of free play, it's amazing how much that teaches you. Um, you know, learning how to uh, exist in a world um, on your um, using your own imagination and your own coping skills. And I have to say that was my superpower when I got to college. Uh, I'd been working since I was 11. I was not overwhelmed by the responsibility and potential of personal freedom. Um, and I felt bad in some cases for the kids who um, that I also went to law school with who hadn't had a job in order to compare how hard law school was uh, to being compared to a real job. Um, frankly, law school isn't all that hard. And I know that sounds you know, kind of crazy, but for those of us who had actually had uh, serious work experience or for that matter had had a career um, before law school, it just, you know, it was maybe about the same difficulty as having a full-time job, but not more. Uh, whereas some of the kids who just went straight through um, felt, seemed to feel perpetually overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. No, I believe this. And I think, I mean, I talk about this a bit in the anxiety article, but I really believe the decline of the summer job, the decline of the after school job, the decline of chores, the decline of walking yourself to school, all these things it may seem like an obvious point, but they do provide you with experience with physical discomfort and unpleasantness. And if you don't have those things, I'm not sure really what substitutes. Yeah, it kind of shocked me in your article how few kids are riding their bikes to school now because that was a huge part of my childhood and and hanging out around the bike racks with my friends while we were locking up our bikes before class was, you know, a big part of my social life and it seems like now you say only 10% of kids walk or bicycle to school. Not wild. A steep decline. Yeah. It, it's 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 amazing and and kids aren't working summer jobs or or after school jobs, which was a, a very big part of my childhood as well. I want to, before we wrap up here, bring this to the present day a little bit. So you wrote your article in April, and the only time when COVID is mentioned, and it seems it's probably went in late at the editing stage, oh, is in the beginning. Uh, there's a little hat tip to it. I know these articles are in the works months or weeks. Yeah, before exactly. I, I had written this two months ahead of time. So I, I had <laughs> I know, I, or perhaps I should have had some glimmer of what was coming, but I did not. <laughs> but, but, you know, parental stress, as you make clear in the article, can contribute to stress and anxiety and depression in the children. You, you write in the article that treating a depressed mother with antidepressants quickly reduced depressive symptoms in her child. And so I have to wonder, with COVID, we have people losing their jobs. We have parents who are struggling to work from home while also playing teacher to their kids because a lot of schools are closed. I can only imagine, just anecdotally, I don't have kids, that the stress and anxiety of raising kids has just been ratcheted up uh, exponentially. And I know it's probably too soon to see the data on this, but I can't imagine any of the trends you discuss in this article are made better by COVID, are they? Oof, this is such a complicated question. And I think absolutely, like it is too soon to know for sure. And I also think that the socioeconomic differences here are going to be intense. 
Um, I think there is some evidence. Jean Twenge published an article in The Atlantic a couple of weeks ago on the website looking at some data she crunched from this spring and comparing it to a year prior in terms of how kids were doing in terms of anxiety, depression, and other symptoms. And surprisingly, a lot of them, um, or maybe counterintuitively, a lot of them were actually doing better. Um, and she sort of tries to come up with some theories as to why that may be the case. It, it certainly tracks with my own kind of quick round of re-reporting after the pandemic as I was preparing to do sort of other interviews on this piece and trying to get smart. A lot of kid anxiety experts said, yes, on the one hand, the parents' anxiety is a big issue here and that will have effects on the kids. On the other hand, kids are insulated from a lot of the things that are their sources of stress right now. Right. For a lot of kids, social anxiety uh, is is a huge, huge issue. We know sort of fascinatingly, in fact, that there's a school year uh, pre pandemic. There's kind of some school year tie in to trends and kids mental health issues. So historically, among most people, uh, suicide rates sp spike in the summer. Um, we know that the opposite has been happening with kids in recent years, that they happen to go up during the school year and to go down in the summer. And other things, you know, also seem to get worse during the school year. So for a lot of kids, for all the complaining about distance learning, um, for kids who are not sort of at the more economically precarious end of the, the socioeconomic spectrum, they actually are feeling pretty good right now, especially if they suffer from anxiety, right? Because they're not having to deal with social and academic stress. Um, if there are kids that have some of the more common childhood anxiety disorders, such as separation disorder, social anxiety disorder, they're just not having to confront those right now. Of course, what that means is that when we go back to normal, whatever normal is, it may be really, really, really difficult for them to sort of reenter um, life outside the home. And that may be, yeah, I, you know, I, I, one thing I was just going to add to that is that school refusal is a big, big issue. And it's a sort of just under-recognized, but really almost epidemic problem in some areas among high schoolers. And I worry very much about that following, um, following the pandemic. One of the things I was saying towards the beginning of this is that actually maybe there's some potential good in the sense that it's inherently chaotic and kids will go through an experience where they feel like they made it through something. Kind of like for the same reason horror movies actually tend to leave you feeling better at the end. You feel like you're competent, like you're getting through it. There's a lot more free time. There's a lot more figuring things out on your own. So I do think, and I'm going to be super curious about different types of studies, particularly differences among socioeconomic lines, I'd be utterly fascinated by that. But I do see at least, I think for some kids, there's gonna, they're going to come out of this feeling a little bit more empowered. Yeah. I doubt that's going to be the norm. Though. Yeah. Is there, is there some sort of correlation between big global events or unrest and a decline in these sorts of phenomena, anxiety, depression, suicide? I, I vaguely recall someone at yeah. the beginning of this saying yeah. that like during World War II, you see, you saw drops in, in some of these, uh, these uh, suicides and, yeah. you know, is there something, yeah. is there a sense of solidarity you get? I, I, I'm, I, with... I'm not an expert in this by any means, but there's some fascinating stuff in Scott Stossel's book, My Age of Anxiety, that talks about experiences of people who lived through some of the more brutal aspects of World War II having le less of an issue, surprisingly, with anxiety and depression and following that, you know, which is, in other words, they'd gotten through sort of something worse than anybody could imagine. And after that, other things seemed less challenging. Yeah, I definitely have seen that in action with a lot of people. My dad was an orphan in Yugoslavia, and he talks about this in a kind of matter-of-factual way about a life that was just 
horrifying. Um, that being said, he certainly didn't get out of it unscathed, uh, and that's a whole other story um, that I don't particularly want to tell. Uh, I did want to ask one impertinent question in this. I read the whole thing, and I felt uh, like it was uh, so on board with what we were saying and coddling, and, and I knew you'd spoken to Height. And the reason why I'm sensitive to this is because James Bennett wrote something right before he got tossed uh, from the New York Times, basically disowning the title coddling, which felt a little bit personal because uh, he, he was the person um, who, uh, who green-lighted it uh, at the Atlantic. Um, so what I'm getting at is, any reason there was no shout-out in the article for coddling? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I will say I read Coddling, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an editor at the magazine. And although I didn't work with you guys on that piece, I certainly read versions of it when it was um, in the editorial process and when Don Peck was editing it. And then, of course, I read the book when it came out. And as I was reporting this piece back in January, December timeframe, I reread the book and I actually called Don, who was my editor at that point, or one of my editors on this piece. And I said, actually, I don't really think I should do this piece. I think it's all kind of derivative of coddling. And he said, don't be silly, write the piece. And I love it. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to do the podcast with you, because this is going to reframe my whole thinking on the paranoid parenting thing. And I was actually mildly disappointed. Well, actually, no, I'm a little torn. I'm dying to read your sex recession book because as far as a phenomena that I, I would have been like, this can't possibly be a thing. You know, human nature, the idea that we start actually shrinking away from sex. Talk about the idea, yeah, the opposite of sort of adaptive behavior. Yeah, exactly. But I'm mildly disappointed to hear that you're not. Do, do you have any intention of writing a book about this? because it's such a deep topic. You know, I don't think so, but I do think that some of this will find its way into the, the sex recession book. I had always planned to have a chapter or more about how childhood and adolescence might figure into all of this, and I think that I will probably expand that section somewhat. I think this can probably be my last question, just because it's getting a little bit off topic, but I'm fascinated by it. The sex recession is specifically intense in Japan. I assume you've looked into that? I think that was in the original article. Any thoughts there? Well, so, you know, I, I, the Japan example is just endlessly fascinating. And I could spend all day talking about it. I'm a little bit wary of it because I do feel like the causes there may not be entirely overlapping with the causes here. Um, for example, you know, Japan's culture, sort of gender norms and, and culture of romance and dating are so wildly different than ours. I mean, they had arranged marriage through World War II. Um, and in the post-war period, sort of the norm was for couples to meet in the office. And you had a lot of sort of young women who had office jobs until they met a spouse and then they, um, they quit. And sort of following Japan's economic crisis, that all fell apart. Um, so there's a sort of big structural economic cause of their sort of failed dating culture. You know, there wasn't another way for people to meet each other, really, that was set up. And I'm not sure that that's exactly what's happened here, although certainly there may be, you know, a, a bit of commonality. Um, so that's one big part of it. In the, in the magazine article, I talked a lot about sort of Japan's relationship with porn and masturbation and stuff like that. And you know, there may be something there, but those things are very complicated as well. And you really dig down. Besides the anxiety issue, actually, this is a question I really should end on. But what's the thing that you found out so far that surprised you the most in your research, either on this article or on the sex recession? 
Oh, wow. Um, hmm, wait, you're going to have to give me a second. I should have an answer to this. Take your time. We can cut out the white yeah, noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And believe me, I understand. I'm not sure how I would answer this if someone asked me this about coddling. <laughs> I'm just like glancing at my notes here for one second. You know, I would have to say what may actually seem, you know, following this conversation, not that surprising, which is just the extent to which anxiety is much more treatable um, than the problems to which it leads and the extent to which we're doing the very opposite of the things that we ought to do to prevent it. Um, it's, it's, it's just one of these kind of almost, to me, tragic examples of sort of low-hanging fruit. And we really need to do much more and, and uh, quickly um, to, to sort of rethink the way that we're preparing kids for adversity. You, you quote a mother in your article who says that anxiety is the road to hell. Uh, but then, as you were saying earlier, there some anxiety that's a regular part of life. How do parents distinguish between normal anxiety and an anxiety disorder, especially in our age of intense sensitivity to anxiety? Right. Well, I think this idea of accommodation is actually a really great way to check yourself and check your kid. Right. Are you is, is your kid's anxiety about something so severe that you're having to change your behavior in response to it? If so, that should be a big red flashing light. Right. Both because that's a sign that the anxiety is crossed over into pathological territory and because it's a sign that you're doing something in response that's going to make the problem worse and not better. So, for example, if you find yourself, you know, having to lie in bed with your kid at night because your kid is that afraid of being alone or, or being in the dark, if you're having to curtail social um, your, your own social life because your kid can't deal with having strangers in the house. Those types of things would be a sign that there's something that you really need to look at closely here. As a parent, I get all of this stuff. I'm working on something called a coddling caveat just to explain. I really tried to have this in the book originally, but it got taken out because I think someone thought it might sound insincere, but I really want to emphasize my sincerity, sincerity here. I am an anxious parent. I am an anxious parent. And I understand all the desire to take care of all of these issues, to just squeeze your kids to death. But I, but it does seem uh, like so much of what we're finding out over the last several years in social science is that your grandmother might have been right, uh, may, may not have been right about everything, but she was right about more than we used to give her credit for. A lot more, a lot more. And I guess as a caveat to my own article, I would like to say that I identify intensely with many of the behaviors that I sort of identify as problematic. Um, you know, I don't talk about it more in the article because I've sort of made a deal with my family that I'm not going to talk about my kids in print. Um, but, I'm, but I, as a parent, am absolutely culpable and this stuff is hard. Well, how much of it, I'm not a parent, is just social pressure. I can imagine if you're not seeing any other kids riding their bike to school or walking to the local corner store and you're seeing all the other kids uh, in your child's grade taking music lessons and then going to their sporting game and having intense structured time, the pressure on you as a parent would be to to go along and not give them the free play or the the ability to fail, which uh, seems to me to be one of the most important lessons that a child can have growing up, the, yeah. the lessons that come from failure. But you, you know, you don't want to be that parent, right? Who looks like they're not just a bad parent, but a, a parent who doesn't care about their child. Absolutely. I mean, these are fundamentally group problems at the end of the day. I think that's part of why Lenore Skenazi's Let Grow group um, is, is really so important because they're trying to kind of get whole communities involved in the discussion and in the solution. You can't do this by yourself, not only because 
you know, you as an anxious parent will feel like, gosh, am I really right about letting my kid go to the park by himself or do this other thing? And also because for the kid, it's frankly kind of, you know, not the greatest to think like, well, nobody else's parents let them do this thing because my parent not love me. It has to be something that we kind of deal with um, together as a community. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Greg, did you have any other last questions? It sounded like your last one was your last one. You mean my three last ones? (laughs) This was spectacular. I love your article. I'm going to keep telling everyone in the world to read it. Do you have any idea when the Sex Recession book is coming out? I'm always very sensitive of asking this of an author. Uh, It can be a touchy subject uh, when their book might come out. (laughs) Uh, It's supposed to be a couple years from now, 2022. So it's a bit hard to imagine what sort of, you know, the world looks like next year, let alone the year after. But well, that, well, that's part of the problem of talking about this stuff is that the data keeps evolving. It's like you're in the thick of it. It's not like you're a historian looking back on some far off phenomenon. I mean, we're amidst the phenomenon, so it must be difficult to keep it up to date. No, it's, it's intense. And I'm very aware of the fact, for example, that since I talk about so many of the evils of social uh, media, that I'm predicting that we'll have better cultural mechanisms um, for at least dealing with some of the negative sides of social media. Well, Kate, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, this was tremendously fun for me. I could talk to you for 16, 17, uh, <laughs> I was going to say hours in a row, uh, but I, I think probably more like days. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show, um, and I look forward to talking to you more in the future. Yeah, yeah, Kate and Greg, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. That was senior editor at The Atlantic and author of What Happened to American Childhood, Kate Julian. Joining her was Fire President and CEO and Coddling of the American Mind co-author Greg Lukianoff. To continue catching up with Coddling, visit Greg's blog, The Eternally Radical Idea, at eternallyradicalidea.com. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at speak at thefire.org, or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And as always, until next time, I thank you again for listening.